Greetings, gentle podcast listeners, and welcome to episode number three. Wow, episode three, how the time does fly. Episode number three of the Brattleboro Historical Society podcast, prepared for release onto the World Wide Web, July 28th, 2015. My name is Reggie Martell, and it is my privilege to be uploading this first podcast installment of Bill Holiday's Vietnam-era oral history project. This initiative was started by Bill last spring in conjunction with the good folks at BCTV, where these interviews were recorded. Oh, oh and that's the, the Brattleboro Community Television these interviews feature uh, Brattleboro residents discussing their experiences and remembrances, thoughts, feelings, etc. about that period in Brattleboro's history, the Vietnam War era, 60s, early 70s. I should say this is an ongoing project, so if you would like to participate or know of someone we should contact about participating, please do give us a ring at the Historical Society. All of our contact information is on the website at BrattleboroHistoricalSociety.org or uh, just give us a call at 258-4957. And if you're calling out of town, you'll need to affix the 802 area code to that number. And with uh, the business portion concluded, I'm happy to introduce Bill Holiday's interview with Dr. Robert Tortolani, who I should say asked right at the beginning of the interview to please just call him Bob. So we did on that day of recording and henceforth shell in this podcast. Bob, as many listeners surely know, has been a local physician for decades in the Brattleboro area. He very graciously agreed to be interviewed for this oral history project about his time as a combat physician in the United States Army in Vietnam during the war, the Vietnam War, or what the Vietnamese call the American War. Bob served in Vietnam from 1968 to 1969 before returning to the States and ultimately concluding his service in the Army in 1970. In June of this year, June 15th, uh, he spoke with Bill Holiday of the Brattleboro Historical Society at the studios of Brattleboro Community Television. This podcast is the audio version of that conversation. And the video version is available on the Historical Society website. So the next voice you will hear is Dr. Bob Tortolani. Well, first of all, thank you for asking me to do this, uh, because a lot of men are not going to be asked to do this, but also have a story to tell. So anyway, thank you. Uh, in 1967, I was an intern after having gone to medical school. I was an intern in Burlington, Vermont, called a rotating intern. And uh, that was a one-year tour. And because of the way things were heating up in Vietnam, it was pretty clear that everybody who was a doctor in training was going to go to Vietnam. Everybody was going to go. It wasn't a question. It was a question of when. It wasn't a question of whether you're going to go or not. 
They needed thousands of doctors. So I knew I was going to go. I had a choice. I could either go right at the end of my internship. That was at the end of 1968. That would be June of 68. Or I could wait. I could be a specialist. I could go to two more years of uh, study. And then I could go in 1970. I chose to go in, in 1968. So they just signed me up. And I had a choice of going into the Navy or Army. I thought. If I went into the Navy, I probably would be with the Marines, and I thought the Marines are wonderful, but I didn't think it would be best for me to be a Marine doctor. I thought I'd be better off being an Army doctor. So I went into the Army, okay? So I started in June of 1968 in the Army, and I got out in June of 1970. I was in the Army for two years. Two things. Why better with the Army than the Marines? And second thing, you got in there just on the heels of the Tet Offensive. Well, the Tet Offensive had just had, uh, has occurred in, in 68, in, uh, in January, February of 68. So I went in just four months after the Tet. Okay. They were expecting a Tet in 69. had a lot to do with the way our particular division was deployed. But at any rate, why? Um, I thought the Marines were in a particularly tough situation. Uh, the Marines were in I-Corps. They, they seemed to be doing a lot of defensive kind of stuff and small maneuvering operations. I didn't think that was their forte. I didn't think it was, uh, the, the Marines are meant to be more offensive in you know, more dramatic fashion. I thought the Marines had a very tough time over there. Um, and I think they were put in harm's way a lot. And I just didn't, for some reason, I didn't want to be, I would have loved to have been on a ship, but I knew all the, uh, the Navy physicians would be going into the Marines. So I, I just thought the Army was better. I, I, I had the feeling it was better for me. So before you ever went at all, you must have had some notions. We all think about what's in front of us. Did what you thought would happen live up to what you thought would happen, or was mm -hmm. it completely different, or somewhere in between? Probably somewhere in between. I didn't uh, have any definite expectations. I knew that everybody was going over there. I knew it was the war of our generation. I'd, you know, I, I, I didn't particularly, I wasn't particularly happy we were, we were in a war, but I didn't have any reason to not go. I, I was kind of eager to go and help out. Uh, I thought in my, uh, in my role as a physician, I would be doing more, you know, good things, helping the uh, soldiers as opposed to, to fighting. You know, I'm not particularly a fighting type person. I'd rather heal kind of guy. So I just thought, I, I was kind of eager to play a role in that, and I thought my role would be a good one. So uh, I, I was kind of eager to go. So where did you end up? Were you in the Central Highlands? Were you? I spent three months in Texas at a place called Fort Sam Houston, doing what was called a, it was a course, a tropical medicine course for all physicians. And uh, we would learn about tropical diseases, the diseases we'd be seeing over there. We had some. Uh, some uh, brush up on a per emergency procedures, uh, you know, putting in chest tubes and doing various airway procedures and to kind of get, get us ready for that kind of thing. And we would also do, we, we learned how to salute, we learned how to march, we learned the rudiments of being a, a, an officer in the Army. And that was about a 12-week course, uh, after which uh, we all went by, um, by fixed wing to Vietnam, and we had a choice. Once I got over there, I had a choice of 
two or three groups to go into uh, divisions, and I had heard a lot about the first Air Cav division. I thought that they were very, um, they were a very elite division, and I wanted to be with them. So I chose to go to the first Air Cav division, and I was chosen to be a, uh, a physician in one of their battalions, a battalion called the First of the Seventh. It was actually the Seventh Cavalry, which was. Uh, <laughs> The, the, you know, we know about the we seventh, know about the seventh cavalry, yeah. but anyway, uh, I was in the first. There's a, there was the first, the, the second, and the fifth of the seventh. I was in the first of the seventh. That was one of the battalions, about 900 men. I was the physician for 900 men for eight months, and in the last four months, I was uh, with three other doctors in a smaller in a small hospital kind of unit. So we, when we got there, we were in I Corps. We were in uh, near Huey. Um, and very, actually between Hawaii and, and the Ashaw Valley uh, in a place called Camp Evans. And I was there for two and a half to three months. Um, actually, we were kind of getting ready to go into the Ashaw Valley when the, in October, about uh, six weeks after I got there, when my, uh, we were given orders to go to three corps. The entire division was lifted over the course of two, three weeks to three corps. They were expecting a second Tet Offensive in 1969. So they deployed the division uh, around Saigon. We were 75 miles northwest of Saigon in Tainan province. That's where our brigade was. The brigade was three battalions. We were one of three battalions in Tainan province. Then another one was deployed sort of a little bit northwest of Saigon, and the other was a little bit northeast. We were, north, we were west northwest, way west and a little bit north. So we were near the Cambodian border. Um, there was. Um, you know, it was a it was pretty it was a pretty hot area. Let me ask um, mm -hmm. the um, uh, were you in a fixed location for the most part, or were you hopping on the horse hopping of the first the air cab? Yeah, yeah the, I was always on the horse. I um, we we would always have a back uh, a rear area. It was called Tainan West, which was the big um, bat rear area, and then each of our um, each of our battalions had uh, had a forward. A base we called it a fire base they would they would pick a uh, they would take some uh, bombs and bomb the jungle flatten it out and put uh, one company uh, of uh, men would be defending this small base and there would be uh, one uh, there would be uh, three howitzers uh, battery of artillery supporting the other four rifle companies that would be working out you know anywhere from three five ten miles out uh, from that fire base, and I would be have a forward, forward, first forward battalion aid station at the fire base, and I would go out to the various uh, companies each day, rarely at night, but I was usually on the fire base at night. But I would go out, and you know, so I, I, would, I would have uh, kind of a calling hours, if you will, as, a, as our house call. Uh, we'd go out and work with the medics, and they'd have some sick guys, and we'd take care of them. So I'd spend three or four hours with one company, and the next day the next company I'd do that. It made the time go fast. It was it was it was fun to be in helicopters, actually. But you were at terrible peril with what you were doing, moving out into those uh, forward positions like that. And I assume you didn't go alone. Uh, you must have had a, uh, an army of nurses with you. No, 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 no. Just you. Yeah, no nurses. No, no. Just no you. nurses at all. No, right. The medics. The medics were the guys who did the work. Uh, each each company had five medics. Each company had five platoons. One medic to a platoon. Those are the those are the real heroes. The the guys in the you know the grunts and the 
and the medics. They were the people who were in, really in harm's way. And I was the support for them. I was there, the doctor, supporting them, teaching them, helping them do their doctoring. You know, they were known as doc, the, uh, the you know, the grunts, the, uh, the medics. And I was kind of, you know, I was the officer, but they, 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 you know, so. Anyway, so it was a pleasure to serve these guys, these medics. They were, they were wonderful. And the, and the, uh, the, the fellows who were out in the boonies were, were great, too. They were just wonderful people. Yeah. It, was, it was a pleasure to serve them. An interesting thing happened. A poor guy fell, hit his head. Everybody thought he was nauseated and uh, vomiting from drinking too much alcohol. This was on a Saturday night. He actually had a head injury, and he was vomiting because he was having, his brain was, was bleeding. So I and, a, and he had a cardiac arrest, and I and a, one of my medics um, resuscitated him and kept him going for an hour and a half while we took a helicopter to a hospital ship called the Sanctuary off the coast. This was an I-Corps. And um, what that did, it it really cemented a relationship between myself and my battalion. They really, really, you know, said, You're, you did that for our buddy, and it meant a lot to them. So it was kind of, you know, it was, it was nice to get that. He got to the operating room. He didn't survive, but he had a chance of surviving. So that was... It, it was kind of a, it was a terrible thing to happen to him, but from the standpoint of cementing a relationship, it was a pretty important thing. I had a chance to meet uh, Joe Galloway, who accompanied oh, yeah. the uh, yeah. first year cab in right. uh, the, the Idrang Valley yeah. November. The first 19th. day, that was my that was my battalion, the first of the seventh. Right. The first day, they got airlifted out before the the, the next day, which was a disaster. Yeah. But uh, that doctor was three doctors before me. You know. And he went out of his way uh, to have the docs, as he called them, the docs, yeah. stand up. And there were a half dozen of them yeah. in the audience uh, where he oh, spoke. Yeah. So. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. As far as injuries are concerned, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Linda Vandeventer in her book, Home Before Morning, talks about uh, having to play God, where you arrive at a situation and you have to make the decision, is this one savable, is this one not? Um, do we put our attention here uh, as opposed to somewhere else because this fellow has less of a chance to survive? Well, let me, let me tell you, that didn't happen very much to me when I was the battalion doctor, okay? The battalion doctor was primarily involved in prevention and helping his medics. And it was rare that I was treating an acute injury while with the battalion because, again, they were out in the boonies. Uh, when they got into a fight, they were airlifted to that small hospital that I became part of in the last four months. In the last four months, I was, much, I was handling a lot of injured people. The first 12 months, I was handling a lot of sick people. I was seeing them. If they were really sick, I had to get them to a hospital or to a, a, a rear area. I was primarily supporting the troops and the medics the first eight months. And uh, it was relatively rare that there was fights. They, they happened off and on, but I wasn't there generally. When the fight, I'm glad I wasn't there. That was usually at night when the fights were happening. I was usually in the fire base at night. The fire base um, was never attacked 
when I was on it, so I felt very happy about that. I was lucky. Some fire bases were attacked, and sometimes the uh, enemy got inside the wire, if you will, and that was horrible. But I never was in that situation. Probably the most dangerous thing I was involved in the first eight months was in the very rear area where we were rocketed all the time. Um, the 122 millimeter rockets had a range of about 15, 20 miles, and they were very erratic, but they always shot them off around noontime and around supper time. They knew when everybody ate, so they were trying to get a lucky hit. You know, they're very smart. You know, the enemy were very smart. And they were home. Yeah, they were home. They, they, were, they home. were home. They were home. <coughs> exactly. So anyway, um, occasionally I would, in, when I was in the rear area and somebody was hit by a rocket, I would be involved and in, in more or less. But I, uh, I think that what you were talking about was a mass casualty situation, which I was involved in later, but not while I was a battalion surgeon. Mm -hmm. I had about 90 guys I knew got killed over there. Okay, 90. Um, um, I, I saw some bad things. I saw two planes crash. I saw the moment of impact. Everybody was killed on both planes. One was a fixed wing, was a, one was a helicopter. It's, one was carrying mail, a mail came down like that. It's, that's hard to see. And then securing the, the site when they came down, you had to secure it, you know, because it was late afternoon, so you, you know, if you didn't secure that area, the North Vietnamese would come in there. That was an I-Corps, that was about four weeks after getting there. That's pretty rough. How about the weather? How did you cope with the weather? It had to be very, very different from Burlington, yeah. Vermont. <laughs> it was different. Uh, it was always hot. Uh, Texas gave me a sense of that. Um, in Texas, it was 90 to 100 degrees, but the humidity wasn't as high in Texas as it was in, uh, in Vietnam. In Vietnam, it was very humid, and it was hot. It was hot or and hot and humid, or, or sometimes it was, it was monsoon season. It was very wet. Uh, when I was, the first part of my tour, uh, like in October, November, was very rainy. It was uh, and, and very, very wet. And then it got wet again, it seemed to me, sometime around April. But um, between like November and, and March, it was drier. And they had dry seasons, wet seasons. It was always hot, except if you were in the Central Highlands, it would be cool at night sometimes, like 50, 45, 50 degrees. Uh, no snow. No snow. <laughs> no snow. Have any of the uh, fellows that you worked with, the docs or any of the other doctors that you may have gone over with and then were dispersed to other locations, do you stay in touch at all? No, no. I saw one of them when I, uh, my second year after Vietnam, I was in Colorado and I saw one of them there, but uh, no, the answer is no. That's one of the sad things. I wish we did, but no contact. A lot of the veterans have come back with uh, major psychological baggage. Mm -hmm. um, have you been able to avoid that? Does that bother you even from time to time now? Or is it something you've learned to manage or not manage well? Well, what I say is they call this thing post-traumatic stress disorder. See, my theory is it's not a disorder. I think the disorder is the trauma that people go through. And I think it's the normal human reaction to trauma is post-traumatic stress. I don't call it a disorder. I call it normal. And to some extent, uh, I think those people who were in close combat were the ones who were suffering most. And I think the younger people 
and the people who were in close combat all the time had a much harder time with post-traumatic stress. Uh, I've, uh, I've been pretty lucky. I haven't had too much trouble with that. I've just, um, you know, it it's was a hard experience, an amazingly difficult year, but um, I haven't had symptoms the way a lot of people have. But I, again, I call this a normal reaction to a very abnormal situation, and I don't call it a disorder. By the end of your tour of duty, were you looking forward to getting out, or were you thinking, maybe I should stay longer? No, I was looking forward to getting out. I had no, no qualms about that. And was that a general consensus among veterans who were over there, where the primary objective was to be safe long enough to get home? Yeah, I think the, the people who were there for one year did not generally want to go back. I think some of the career people wanted to go back. I think also some, some people found it very hard to go back home because actually they were taught skills that were really not very useful at home and um, they felt very alienated by what they, what, you know, what they came to when they came home. There was not a, an open reception, if you will. People were not particularly kind to the, to the Vietnam veterans when they came home. There's another presentation at the same conference where I met Joe Galloway by a couple of professors who claimed not to have been able to have found any historical evidence, or relatively little, of how the veterans were treated when they came home. Everybody says that, but there doesn't seem to be much, if any, photographic uh, evidence or what have you. A veteran to that stood up in the audience and told a horrid story about what had happened to him at the Philadelphia uh, train station yeah. and he said uh, you can put that in your book that that mm -hmm. happened to me that soldier was me uh, Joe Parrish from from Philadelphia mm -hmm. um, how were you treated when you came home well it's interesting I first of all we were told it probably is not a very good idea to wear your uniform when you get home which to me was my god that's hard, hard to imagine uh, but they, uh, I was told by some people in the, as you were getting back, that uh, some people were not being kind or they were being insulting to people in uniform. So uh, we had to kind of watch out. But I, I, don't, I, I kept my uniform on and I don't, I don't remember anybody saying anything bad to me. Um, I do remember, uh, you know, this is, again, you, you're, the, the time between being in a jungle situation and being in the United States was about four days, um, you know, and, and it's a very, very quick transition, very different transition. I came back on a plane that landed on the West Coast, and then I took other planes to get to the East Coast. I lived on the East Coast. And I remember coming in at night, and um, the first experience I had was getting a cab ride. And I had very little money, first of all, you know, when you came back, I think you were issued $20 or something. We had a little bit of money, you know, we, we didn't have money over there. Uh, we had um, piastres, we had, um, we had Vietnamese money, or we had, we had money that was military script. We didn't have greenbacks, if you will. Mm -hmm. So they gave us a little money, so we, you know, uh, and made sure we could get home okay uh, through, mil through the military. But I, I gave this, uh, the taxi driver was very, very uh, upset when I gave him uh, what he considered to be a less than good tip. And, you know, I mean, you know, I, I would have thought that there would be some respect for someone in uniform, you know, and I don't know, it just, it just rubbed me wrong, so. 
that was my first experience. Yeah, uh, understandably. Yeah. How did you find the Vietnamese? Um, and this could go in any one of a number of directions. Uh, um, when I was over there in 2007, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 80 percent of the population was under the age of 35, right, for right. example. And yeah. They really were oblivious to it, although mm -hmm. we were in situations where we sat in with government officials who'd put together American veterans and Vietnamese veterans, <clears throat> mm -hmm. and a couple of those sessions were a little bit hairy until mm -hmm. people loosened up yeah. a little bit. Of course, they call it the American War. Mm -hmm. uh, we call it the Vietnam War, but sure. uh, did you get a sense, a feel f uh, for the Vietnamese people at all? I did. Um, I, I, I became friends with some of the Vietnamese people that were working in the uh, you know, like concession areas near bases in Pleasant. Um, there were a lot of uh, less well-to-do people that were filling sandbags or doing laundry, and they always were pleasant. You never were perfectly sure that they were on your side. Um, I, uh, I worked with some Vietnamese physicians. Uh, I had the opportunity to work in a, what was called a provincial hospital once a, day, once a week for a few months while I was in Tainan province, and I got to know some of the physicians there. Pleasant. There weren't many of them, but they were kind. And I got to know the traditions of the people when the patients were very sick. The whole family would come and, and stay in the hospital uh, day and night until the person either got better or died. And if they, um, they didn't think the person was going to survive, they would take the person home to die. That was sort of the tradition. Um, I, had, uh, um, I thought that the Vietnamese were, for the most part, um, you know, hardworking. And um, they, they seemed to be, um, you know, they, they put up with the war. They had a lot to put up with. But uh, they didn't complain much. They were just a hardworking ground, ground away. The, uh, I didn't have a whole lot of experience with the South Vietnamese Army um, people. I think a lot, of our, uh, South, a lot of our Army people did not think that the South Vietnamese Army was as uh, dedicated to their job as the North Vietnamese Army was. But maybe that's because they were fighting the North Vietnamese and fighting with the South Vietnamese, hard to say. But um, the, the, the enemy was extremely dedicated. They, they were very, very, very good. The North Vietnamese Army, very, very good. Yeah, a tough foe, a really a tough foe. We had mostly North Vietnamese Army down where I was in, in Tainan. Up in I Corps, there was more Viet Cong, and you know, up there. The injuries were booby traps, and you know, as opposed to in, in, in the Tainan province, there was a lot more big fights, you know, big battles, and you know, groups getting together. Um, the last four months, again, I was not a, in the battalion. I was with three other doctors in a collecting company, and that was we had um, some situations where we had a lot of casualties coming in. They would come in by helicopter. So um, I do remember one situation where we had. About 24 hours straight of casualties. It was about 150 Americans, and some of the North Vietnamese came in also injured, and the ones, you know, and so that was, uh, I remember that very, very well because we just kept working and working and working and working, people coming in with these terrible injuries. And this is where the triaging occurred. If someone was extremely badly hurt and you thought the chances of him surviving, were so low, then that person, you wouldn't spend any time with that person. You just couldn't do it in a mass casualty situation, as opposed to civilian medicine, the sickest person or the most severely injured would be taken care of first. When you have four physicians and 150 people coming at you, that's mass casualty, and we had to 
triage those people. We took care of a few, but most of them went to another hospital uh, a couple of miles away by ambulance, or some of the most, the worst patients would go to an evacuation hospital in Kuchi, which was about 20 miles away from where we were. So we had Kuchi? to make... Kuchi? Kuchi, yeah, I've yeah. been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we had to make that, uh, that, that was an evac hospital. Uh, we had to make that decision. So that's a mass casualty. It's, it's uncomfortable to do that. It was also, I, 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 I found it uncomfortable to, to work on the uh, North Vietnamese, um, but I, I, I mean, I did, we did. We always took care of the Americans first, but if we had time, we would take care of the North Vietnamese. It was, it was, it was a bit hard because you know they were trying to injure you, kill you, but they were just trying to do their job, so they deserved care also. Yeah, it must have been very tough. No. Any conversations of any kind with NVA or VC that no. no one ever say thank you or anything like that? or No, 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 no. Absolutely nothing. No, no. These guys were in bad shape. They were, they were, they were really badly hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I'm assuming you saved some. Well, um, you got them. Tried to patch them up and you know, send them along. You you didn't spend a whole lot of time. You just had to triage. You, again, they had an ambulance crew. We had helicopters taking people in these mass casualty situations. You did what you could, and you you just triage. You you. You take care of some of them, but most of them are going to go either to a place to rest or they're going to go to a surgical hospital or they're going to go to a, even a bigger hospital than a surgical hospital. We had a small surgical hospital with four surgeons about a mile or two away, and uh, some of the people with obvious surgical injuries would go right there, but some of the people with multiple injuries who were extremely bad, they would go to an evac hospital. But we had IV fluids. We would be able to do basically urgent care, uh, you know, uh, immediate care, stabilization. We didn't have blood, but we had fluids, and uh, hospitals would have blood, and uh, anyway, that's the way it worked. Ever coconut oil? No. Never. I, no, I no. just heard that someplace. No, 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 no coconut oil. Okay. Let me, let me ask. Did, sure. Did you get a sense that the United States was going about this war in the right way? No. I, I didn't think they were. I mean, I think... I think one of the things that people should understand about the heroism of the American soldier over there was that it seemed like the war had a lot of political aspects to it. Um, we understood that uh, certain of the staging areas were, were um, like Haiphong, was, was, um, they, they did not bomb starting uh, in November, I think, of 68. They stopped keeping ships from going into that harbor. So it seemed like we really weren't fighting the root of the problem. They, they, for political reasons, they stopped that. You couldn't go into Cambodia uh, in 1968 and 69. Yeah, they did in 70. But in 68 or 69, the enemy could go back and forth. And we were, a lot of our bases were within five to 10 miles of the Cambodian border. And you couldn't take a plane and go after them over the border. You couldn't shoot into Cambodia in 68, 69. So I think a lot of the soldiers were feeling, you know, this doesn't seem right. This is like, you know, if we're going to do this, why don't we kind of do it all or nothing? You know, do it, do it really right. You've heard the saying that you've got your arm tied behind your back. Well, um, so I, I think a lot of the, a lot of us, maybe all of us, felt that we had constraints that didn't make a lot of sense if you're really fighting to win something, um, and so. There, there became, there was a little cynicism. P 
people were feeling, well, gee, you know, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Why, why aren't they doing this and that? Uh, it, it became very clear that a very important thing was to help each other to try to get through this. Okay, and, and there was a tremendous sense of camaraderie among the soldiers and a tremendous sense of bravery. I mean, to, to think that you're fighting a foe that's very, very aggressive, a very good soldier, and you have constraints on what you can do for political reasons or whatever reasons the leaders thought. And um, it, it made you upset, as a, I think most soldiers were upset by it, and, and got to the point where, you know, we'll do our jobs, but we're gonna try really hard to just take care of each other and try to get out of this, try to get home. That was a very important thing. Speculative question here. Yeah. Um, we've been in many, I'll call them altercations, two in Iraq, <clears throat> Grenada mm -hmm. in the early 80s, Lebanon in the 80s, mm -hmm. and of course most recently uh, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It seems like the same kind of political restraints, uh, constraints yeah. are in place today. Yeah, I think so too. I, it's absolutely true. It doesn't seem as though we learn lessons. I think uh, those of us who were in Vietnam thought that maybe this war, which was a long war, it went on for 12 or 13 years, it gave us some time as a country to try to patch things up from the standpoint of being uh, of maybe nuclear disaster with the Soviets, that this was one of those sideshow wars. Well, it didn't seem like a sideshow war near there, but it, was, it, it bought some time and maybe some changes in, in the approach that the governments had to each other. So maybe it kept us from having a bigger confrontation with the Russians themselves or with the Chinese. You know, they, the, the Russians and the Chinese were feeding things to North Vietnamese and, you know, that's the way they were doing it. And so they were, they were making them feel good. And, you know, we were, went on and on and time passed. And I think, I think tempers got a little bit less the Cold War kind of eased up a bit, so that by 1975 things were less scary than they were in 1955 you know, or 60 when the peak of the Cold War. You know, there was a, always a fear about nuclear nuclear holocaust. I think things got better. I, that that's what I feel. I, I you have to take something good out of that war. It was really bad. You had to take something good out of it that maybe it kept us from having a worse war. It didn't teach us any lessons because we don't seem to learn very well as a country. And maybe our, our leaders need to work a little harder to, <laughs> to get things right as we, as we face wars in the future. Um, but I, I think something good has to come out of Vietnam. It really does. It was too hard on our country. It remains hard on our country. I have a feeling, though, the Vietnam veterans are being looked upon not so much as, as bad guys anymore. I think uh, accepted that the, the country, I think, is starting to finally heal. I think, that, uh, I think that Vietnam veterans are accepted more as, you know, they did, they did the best job they could. And, uh, you know, this was, not a, this was not a war that anyone was going to win. We were not going to win that war. The Vietnamese would have fought to the last man. Absolutely. You had absolutely no doubt about that. They, if they had six guys left, and those, those, fellow who were, those fellows who were counting the, you know, you didn't grab territory. It was all about 
body counts. So. The OB, the order of battle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, in my, North Vietnam was a very large country. I, I think at that time they had a population of between 40 and 50 million people. And, and eight, you know, there were 500,000 men coming of age 18 every year. I mean, if you did the math, you're never going to, you're never going to get ahead. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to um, kill that many of the enemy. I'm, I, I'm sorry people didn't think about that a little bit more because that it's just not going to work. I mean, this was not a good, not a good strategy. Now, I, I, I think in the future you have to win. A, you have to if you're going to have a big war, you got to you got to play to win. Yeah, you should try to avoid worse at all costs, diplomatically. Yeah. How about you personally? Uh, when we look back over our lives, and both of us have considerable water under our bridges yeah. at this particular sure, point, sure. Um, you look at things and you say, that was a turning point, that had the greatest impact on me in my life, or where would I be if I had not done this and that? Where does your experience in Vietnam fit? Well, very important. It was a, a very important year. First of all, I know it was hard on friends of mine. It was hard on my parents. and. Uh, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad for their sake I got back. I was the only kid, you know. Um, so, it, you know, I had some good friendships. I, um, I, I learned that you couldn't get too close to people because people die suddenly uh, in, in a war situation. So uh, when a person I was fairly close to died within the first two months after I was there, I, I kind of backed off and made sure I didn't get too close to anybody else. I, I became, I was casual friends, but not close friends with anybody. I think I was always concerned that someone you get closer to is going to die. And, uh, you know, some of that, th that's been a problem for Vietnam veterans in general. I think a lot of Vietnam veterans have had some difficulties with, at least initially, with relationships because they were... They were not sure they weren't going to lose a relationship. That's uh, you know, going along with the post-traumatic stress was the sense of, well, are you going to be there the next day, you know, for them? I, I think that was one of the worries that a lot of people had because they saw so many of their friends not make it. So um, I, I guess I would say it was an extremely influential year for me. Um, I felt I felt that I. Had personally done an okay job over there. I felt bad that the country um, treated the veterans the way they did when they came back. They couldn't separate the war from the, from the warrior, if you will, and I think that was the biggest shame. You know, I think that, I, I, I just, I can't say enough about the bravery of the American soldier over there, how they cared about each other, how they cared about their leaders when their leader was a good leader and didn't put them in harm's way for no reason at all. Uh, they, they would just do anything to, they would follow the instructions of their captain you know, or their lieutenant. And, you know, I was just blown away by, by the bravery of these guys and, and how they would put up with pain and injuries, you know. Um, I think all Americans can be proud of what uh, the soldiers did over there. They were just, I was, I was amazed by it. The Vietnamese ambassador spoke to my group uh, eight years ago, mm -hmm. and he was saying that, uh, you know, there are 58,200 and some odd names on the Vietnam War Memorial, yeah. and that you've done a great job here in this country looking out for your veterans, taking care of your veterans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But don't forget the two million Vietnamese that died and mm -hmm. what was done to the uh, to the environment over right. there. You yeah. ruined the water, you ruined the growing conditions, sure. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Do you feel that the United States has any obligation to the Vietnamese today or that it did in the time has passed? Mm. I haven't thought about that. Um, I that's um, a hard one to answer. I think that we should be at least in some way responsible for our actions and, you know, perhaps at the very least say, sorry, made some mistakes. I think uh, had they known that Agent Orange was going to be so uh, harmful to both Americans and Vietnamese, they probably wouldn't have used it. I think the whole theory was that it was going to reduce deaths rather than cause deaths. So, but. I, I, in terms of, of financial remuneration, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't have an answer for that. I think we could say, um, you know, anything we did to the environment uh, was a mistake, and we, we made a mistake. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. All right, I want to come back to uh, where we started or okay. didn't start. I don't sure. know if you feel comfortable with it right now, but uh, I will ask, and we can cut it out if you don't want to do it. But. Uh, <clears throat> Um, you had, you were, I wouldn't say nervous necessarily, but you had some apprehension about coming in here today to talk about what we've been talking about. Yeah, well, the, uh, the initial, mis I, I had no qualms about sitting down and talking using audio, using video is a little bit more uncomfortable. But I, I, this is being done to help educate other people and uh, who don't know much about the Vietnam War. So I'm... I'm happy to happy to do it. I it it basically it opens up some some tender spots. You know, I, I think all of us felt very very bad about the way the, um, veterans were treated uh, when we came back. You can't help but feel that way. I mean, you 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 give uh, you put yourself in harm's way. You uh, you do the best job you can uh, for your country, and you know you should be. I think that your country should be um, at least accepting you back with open arms and and thanking you for getting home. And uh, we didn't have that. Uh, luckily, we had families and friends who did that. But in terms of um, being accepted um, as someone who was there doing his job, just didn't have that feeling. Yeah, which is a shame. I think. Uh, I think veterans always need to be treated respectfully when they, I think, I think people who are willing to do things for their country are, are special and I think they need to be uh, thanked, that's what I think. Um, I was out at Kent State for the 40th anniversary of the shooting out there, mm -hmm. so May 2010, yep. and there was a session going on, a lot of veterans in it, and one guy particularly got up and just bolted out of the room. So I followed him with my microphone and asked him what had made him so upset. And he said, uh, because the video they were showing showed a parade belatedly, it was 20 years later, mm -hmm. it might have been 1985 or yeah. 1995, and he was furious. He said uh, they shouldn't be honoring Vietnam vets mm -hmm. because they were rapists, they were baby kids, you know, all those charges mm -hmm. that we've heard. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to a guy like that who 
heard your comments just a few minutes ago. Actually, well, you, you've said it several times uh, hmm. about the respect for Well, what, what I would say is that uh, in terms of, uh, I, I know that in war situations, bad things happen, but I personally never saw anything like, I never saw anything suggesting um, rape or, um, or any, any uh, specific events where someone was tortured or where someone where someone's house was burned down. I know those things happened. It, it, it happened in different places, but in my unit that didn't happen at the time I was there. So, um, uh, you know, I, I just think, um, again, people should not generalize and say that because some bad things happened, the other two and a half million veterans who probably never saw any of that stuff, uh, you know, uh, should be treated disrespectfully. And what I would say is that uh, war is such a bad situation, does such bad things. For example, My Lai, what happened to those, those soldiers, what they became, you know, inhumane and unhuman during a period of time. They were so angry about what was happening, the deaths of their unit, that they, uh, they did things they shouldn't have done, you know. But that's what war does, and we should really try hard to avoid putting our people in, in more situations. I, I'm not going to say they were treated badly. I, I, the, the, the issue is, I think you could, you could treat a returning soldier with honor, or you could you know, feel uncomfortable or ignore him. There was not any sense of, I think, treating someone who came back from that with any type of respect and um, honoring him. And uh, I think that's the thing. It, and I think that we were used to seeing our fathers and our uncles honored when they done their job, you know, in the service. You know, that's whether it was Korea or Second World War. There was something different about the Vietnam War that the American people were so much against the war and had, had developed such a sense that that the American soldiers were not doing what they should be doing, perhaps, that they developed an attitude about it. Um, so. Maybe to comment on the draft, too. I try to tell kids in my high school the difference is the draft. Mm -hmm. um, you're 17 years old sitting in this classroom very comfortably. There's no pressure on you. but. Uh, where would you be, what would you be doing right now if you knew in another year you were going to be drafted and sent into an unpopular war? Mm -hmm. Is it the draft? Is it the I draft mean, that, that, that is the that made people uh, discernible so difference? Yeah, well, between Vietnam and, and other wars. Well, Vietnam was a war that was, in a sense, a lot like, I mean, it was uh, on television all the time. That was a different, that was probably the the big thing that changed between Korea and Vietnam. There was so many correspondents that were over there that were uh, getting pictures, and so people were seeing these things all the time. And so many people, with two and a half million men and women over there during a 12, 13 year period, a huge number of families were affected. Whereas our army now is, is a volunteer army, and the, the, the American people are not quite as affected in the numbers they were then. So everybody was affected by watching the TV and by hearing various things and, uh, and by so many of the people uh, in America having either a friend or a family member who was over there. So 
and now it's a professional army. Um, and I, I think there's some good things about a professional army and some bad things. I think that the professional army, uh, they, obviously it's a wonderful, wonderfully well-trained people and they want to be doing what they're doing. Um, but I, I don't think as many people are involved day-to-day um, -day with the soldiers as, as we had, you know, back in Vietnam. So, anyway. Yep. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, was there something you said, I know he's going to ask me this, that I haven't asked that you wanted to respond to? Um, no, I don't think so. I think you've covered it, you know, pretty well. I, um, I just... You know, I want to get, get across the fact that the, the typical American soldier was a young fellow who would rather have been home with his family, but thought that because he was drafted, his job was to do what his, his country asked him to do. And they did it well. And uh, they, they really performed bravely. And when they were hurt or in harm's way, they were very, they were very caring of their colleagues, and I think, I think they performed as well as soldiers ever performed in our armies, and um, I, I'm proud to say that I was involved with taking care of them. You know, they were, they were great, and, you know, the fact that it was an unpopular war, I hope that we'll continue to work on healing in this country and. Always uh, keeping in the back of our mind, anybody who puts himself out there to, to, uh, to help support our country's goals, even if they're not perhaps as well thought out as they could be, that's our job. And, uh, and when people are finished doing their job, they should be treated respectfully in all future wars. I think that's very, very important. I hope we don't have too many wars in the future. but. <laughs> we seem to find a hard uh, yeah. way to get rid of them. Yeah, we do. I did have one other question, sure. uh, and uh, I meant to ask earlier, and mm -hmm. I, I packed okay. it away. And that was, um, here in the Brattleboro area, mm -hmm. do you immediately recognize other Vietnam veterans and or veterans in general? Is there a com camaraderie among veterans, or uh, come see, come saw? Well, I think there are some, uh, we have a Vietnam veterans group that meets every two months here in town. So they're friends. Uh, that I see every two months. Um, I participate in certain events at the VFW and the American Legion, and uh, it's always wonderful to get together with other veterans. I, I think veterans are a special group. I think uh, tend to be very um, um, patriotic, and uh, I'll tell you, when I put that flag out every day, it's, uh, it may be different for me than it is for some people. You know, if you're fighting with that flag, it's, it's really something. You know, people have died with that flag over their heads. It makes a difference. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Brattleboro Historical Society podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the program.